If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 19. We're going to be um, in 1 Samuel 19 uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask you the question, how many of you have ever read the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? How many of you waited 42 years to watch the movie? I did. If you have Disney Plus, it's on Disney Plus. It was uh, a movie that came out, I think, in 2014. The book was written in 1972. Um, It's a book about a young boy named Alexander. And just like the title of the book says, anything that could go wrong in Alexander's life went wrong that day. And not just for him, but also for his family. From the very start, he woke up and he had bubble gum in his hair. And then he goes through his day and he's in science class and he catches one of the maps on fire. And, and it just spirals from there. From, or throughout the day, it's one thing after another. And you get the perspective that what he is experiencing and what his family is experiencing is an extremely deflating um, situation in life where you can just sense and see the angst that they are feeling. Do you ever have one of those days where whatever could go wrong goes wrong? Do you ever have one of those weeks or months or years? And even if everything doesn't go wrong, enough of it does that that is all that you can focus on. Like that's all you see. It's hard to see the good things when it seems like there's these overwhelming things. Alexander's family was faced with extreme difficulties, but at the end of the day, in the movie, the the main point is they all stick together, and they're there for each other, and you get that sense of, we did it together, we have each other. But what happens if you don't have anyone to share your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? It would seem that David is stuck in this season as we look at this passage this morning. And little by little throughout the chapters, I say that more than one, the chapters of 1 Samuel that we're seeing this morning, you see a whittling away of all of the safeguards that are in David's life. By the time we finish our look in chapter 21 this morning, David will be in Philistine territory begging the king of an enemy nation for him to be able to come in and rest. But he's not going to do so just by a simple request. David is going to uh, fake his own sanity and act like a crazy person so that the king would receive him. Do you kind of get the sense that things are not going well in David's life? David's decline shadows that of another Old, Old Testament man. In fact, I read his account in parallel as I was reading David's account, and, and instantly I just saw the meshing together that the challenges that David faces seem to echo those of Job. And if you're familiar with the, the Old Testament 
um, message of the book of Job. You know what Job went through even just in the first two chapters. A man that had considerable wealth, a great family. He had prestige and honor in his community. And within two short chapters and really just a very short time in Job's life, he lost everything. And it's not that he just lost everything on his own. It's that God willed that he lose everything. And the rest of the book of Job, some 40 chapters, is Job on this search of finding purpose in his pain. Why do the righteous suffer? And finally, God intervenes and steps in and gives comfort and calm to Job's heart by challenging him to consider the vastness and beauty of the Lord. And I kind of get that perspective as we're looking at David right here. Within three chapters, he's going to lose everything that was a source of comfort for him. Again and again, David is hit with trouble. And the question that I ask myself here, and I often ask in my um, own personal journey when trouble comes, is where are you, Lord? Where are you? I mean, I know he's there. But very specifically in the moment, God, where are you? If you're to be this sovereign king that holds all things together with the counsel of your will, God, where are you? I mean, when you look at David's story, right, we we titled this sermon series, David, a man after God's own heart. And you read what David goes through as he is crushed by the circumstances that he is facing. Aren't we tempted to think, God, if that is true, if he's a man after your own heart, God, where are you? God, why are you permitting these things to happen? David's been incredibly faithful. He's been obedient. He lived with character. We've seen that already in this young teenage life that David has. As with great valor, he stands before the giant. With great faith, he indicates that I am standing on behalf of the Lord himself, and I defend the Lord, not just Israel, but I defend the Lord as the giant is casting his insults. We see the character as David received a demotion last week. And what did we read at the end of chapter 18? Well, we read that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, that he lived with character and honor in all that he did. And now we're going to see that David in these chapters is being hunted like an animal of prey. And he is on the run. And he has no safe place to go. It would seem from our finite perspectives that the Lord is absent, but he's not. He's not absent. He is as present as ever. But in these moments, I believe God is wanting to use them much like he did for Job to awaken David. And I believe that God does it for us to awaken us 
to his power and holiness and to remind us of his steadfast care. And so I say to you this morning, before we even look at one verse of this passage, that when you look into David's story and you consider the own troubles and pain that you've experienced, the own very bad days that you go through, that the Lord has great purpose for you in your pain. And that there is a great power that He wants to put on display in your life as you lean into His grace. And that God will use all of it for His glory to make you more like His Son. Before we look in the, the, the text this morning, I just want to give you a quick disclaimer about this message. And really, as we're moving forward in 1 Samuel, um, if you've been with us before, you understand that we often look at passages in great detail. I, I don't know, it was almost two years that we looked at the book of Romans. You know, verse by verse, word by word, those kinds of things. But this passage and, and the passages of the narrative story of Israel in the Old Testament are meant to be preached differently because they're more thought by thought kind of things, idea by idea kind of things. And so this morning in three chapters, we're just going to look at the big picture and then drill into some of the principles that we see. I encourage you to go back today, this week, whenever, and, and read 1 Samuel 19, 20, and 21 on your own and try to get that specific detailed look. But as we look at the big broad strokes, I, I, I hope that you get the sense of what God wants you to learn through it. And so as we're in 1 Samuel 19, we're going to consider the things that God stripped away from David's life to prepare him to be the person that God wanted him to be as the next king of Israel. And it all begins in chapter 19, again, as David is in this relationship with the king's son named Jonathan. And we were introduced to Jonathan in the beginning of chapter 18 that Jonathan had a deep love for David. They had a strong relationship together. Here the king's son that should have been the next king acquiesced himself for the sake of his friend, David. And they made a, a promise to each other to be there for each other, to be committed to each other. And that relationship is going to be tested in chapters 19 and 20. It's going to be really put on display as we see this, that Jonathan was a good friend for David. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 20, Jonathan is not able to be there for his friend, David. And whatever a good friend means to you when you're in the valleys of life, Jonathan will not be there, will not be able to be there for David. They'll have a few other kind of meetings, but they're not going to be around each other. You know, we're like some of you guys that have friends, some of you people out there, not just guys, but like, it's like you have a standing appointment every Friday morning for coffee or, you know, every Saturday you go to lunch with someone or you do something together with a good friend. That's not going to be able to happen in David's life as he is on the run. But we see in the first 10 verses that Jonathan is advocating for David before the king. Basically, Jonathan says to his dad, what has David done that you are giving him such harassment. In verse 2, Jonathan tells David, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. 
And then he says, I'm going to go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I find anything out, I'm going to tell you. Basically, he's going to give the insider secrets of what's happening in the king's thoughts so that he can protect his friend. And then Jonathan spoke well of David to his father. He's trying to convince him. He's trying to to take away the, the difficulty that Saul feels. And so Saul says, okay, everything's fine. David could come and be with me. And what do we read in the rest of these verses in five and following? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, verse six, and Saul vowed as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David, verse seven. David goes to Saul. And when there was a war again, what happens? David goes out and fights. And we know that Saul, in the back of his mind, is hoping that as David is going out to war and fighting on behalf of Israel, that some of the Philistines will come and kill him and that the problem will be solved. Saul is not saying that everything is fine. Saul is calculated in his thinking about getting rid of David. In verse 9, we read, that there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul. We knew that in chapter 16. As the spirit of the Lord left Saul and came upon David, Saul was terrorized by an evil spirit from the Lord. And as this evil spirit from the Lord was on Saul, he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing his harp with his hand, because in Saul's fits of rage, David would, would play his music, and Saul would be comforted. But as this fit of rage is on Saul, and the spirit of evil was on Saul himself, we see again that Saul picks up the spear and tries to pin David to the wall in verse 10. This is at least the fourth time that we know that Saul picked up a spear and tried to hurl it at David to end his life. And so what does David do? Well, he slips out of the way of his presence and he fled and escaped that night in verse 10. Where does he go? He goes to his wife. Who's his wife? Michael. Who's Michael? Well, he, uh, she is Saul's daughter. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. Michael steps in and intercedes for her husband. You know what's interesting, and we saw this last week, who are the two people that advocate for David the most in this passage? Saul's oldest son and Saul's daughter. Saul's own family sees David, and they love him over the wickedness of their father. And so it gets kind of strange here in chapter 19 at this point. What does Michael do? Well, through deceit. And we're going to see deceit playing out in these chapters. And listen, don't read these chapters and say to you, okay, this gives me allowance to fib the truth so that, you know, I can survive. But God is sovereignly working over this. What does Michael do? Well, he, she sends her husband out the window. And what does she do? She takes one of the household idols, lays it in the bed, takes goat's hair, lays it over it. And so when Saul's army checks in on him, they look into the bed and see what seems to be a body laying in the bed. Now, this is how my brain works. 
I instantly thought of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> if you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he takes a mannequin, lays it in the bed, and has this machine working to pretend that he's sleeping when he's actually out uh, spending the day in Chicago. That's like what I was thinking, right? So you might think, well, how did David's wife have an idol in the home? And it's possible that this idol that was being used came from Canaanite um, lore because they were prominent in the Canaanite or Philistine people and that they were used as like a fertility idol for prosperity and family. And it's also possible that the person that had the idol would be guaranteed the inheritance. And we see this in the book of Genesis. We're not quite sure, but we know that Michael using her wits were trying to find a way for David to be spared from her father. So David sneaks out in the middle of the night. And at this point, he's not able to be with his wife. He loses her as a support. So where does David go? In verses 18 through 24, he runs to someone who is of great comfort to him. Who is that someone? It's Samuel. Samuel, the prophet. Samuel, the final judge. Samuel, the one that announced in chapter 16 that God is setting you apart for something special. So he goes to Samuel. He fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. It was told Saul saying in verse 19, behold, David is in Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing and presiding over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And then we read later on, in verses 23 and 24, and he proceeded there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. Who is the he there? Saul. King Saul received the Spirit of God, not in evil, but the Spirit of God came upon the king. And what does he do in verse 24? He also stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now you might think, well, he went crazy, took off his clothes. He's laying on the ground and he's prophesying. He's surely mad. It doesn't mean that he was completely naked. It could be in reference. He took everything off except for the inner tunic and he laid down. And what does he do? Prophesy all day long. So what is the big picture at this point as David flees to Samuel? Now Saul is pursuing him and he has to go. He can't stay. Saul shows up with his people and the Spirit of God intervenes and controls them so that they spend time prophesying in the presence of the Lord. God is sovereignly at work, providentially caring for David protecting him from the evil of the king that's pursuing him. But what do we see at the end of chapter 19? Saul loses another person. He can't go back to Samuel. He's losing a spiritual encourager, someone that would be there to help him. So he's lost his wife. He's losing the prophet. Chapter 20 we're introduced with John, to Jonathan again. 
And what's interesting about chapter 20 is the first part is a rather long, beautiful description of the kind of relationship that they had. David fled to Nioth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Like David is like, why is your father so bent on destroying me? And we knew at the end of chapter 18 that the light bulb finally went off in Saul's mind where he's like, I know the Lord is with him. And if the Lord is with him, that must mean that my days are numbered. And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father, this is Jonathan speaking. My father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. He's still advocating for his dad. He's still trying to be an intermediary. He's still trying to broker peace between the two of them. Yet David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I've found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this or he will be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, Lives, and as your soul lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. David understands that his life is on the line, that he is right on the edge of not having any more existence on this earth, that Saul wants to end him. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Right, Jonathan's like, this is my dad, this is my best friend. This is my dad, this is my best friend. Best friend is like, your dad's trying to kill me. Finally, Jonathan says, whatever you say, David, I got your back. And what do they do throughout the rest of these verses in the middle part of chapter 20? They make a promise to each other. They make a covenant. Basically, if you read it yourself, Jonathan says, I pledge my descendants to be pledged to your descendants. I vow my life for your life. Verse 13, if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? He puts his life on the line for his friend. He also says, Well, this is something that David says, and this is the, the uniqueness of their relationship. If you look at verse 8, if David has to die, what does David say in verse 8? Jonathan, I would rather you kill me than your dad. I would rather die at your hands than to die at Saul's. So Jonathan pledges himself to David. He makes in verse 17 a vow, again because of the love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And so in verses 18 through 23, they have this plan. And the the plan focuses on the new moon that was coming. And the new moon, it wasn't some kind of Um, they had a calendar, right? Do you ever have a calendar, like a paper calendar would say, these are the phases of the moon. And they'd look at it and say, oh, the new moon's coming. How did they live back then? They just looked in the sky and said, yep, new moon. 
And what did they do on the new moon? Well, it was a festival day. It was a celebration day. It was a religious ritual kind of day. And they would have a feast. And as the new moon came, the king would call his court and they would celebrate in a meal. Jonathan sends David off. And he says, listen, I'll advocate for you. And I'll say that if... The king asks where you are. I'll just say you've gone off to be with your family on this day for this festival. We read in verse 27, it came about on the second day of the new moon that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go since our family has sacrificed in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now Saul is beginning to put the pieces together. It's like, this isn't right. This isn't normal. This is strange. Verse 30, what do we read? Saul in his hatred and his anger for David now turns to his son, the oldest son, and he curses him out. Verse 30, Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Okay, so that's the clean English translation. No joke. There are other English modern translations that I cannot repeat from this pulpit of how they translate these words. Like it's not suitable for work. We'll have an elders meeting right after the church service. (laughs) He goes on, he says, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And what does that mean? Well, basically Saul was saying to his son, it is shame on your mother that the one who should be king next is choosing the other one rather than me. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? What does Saul do next? Verse 33, Then Saul hurled his spear at him. Who? His son. It's getting crazy in Saul's house. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Now the rest of the verses in chapter 20 are the plan being played out that David and Jonathan had. Basically, here's what Jonathan says. When I find a way to tell you that everything is either okay or you need to go, I want you to hide out in this area behind this rock. I'm going to go out into the field like I'm taking target practice with my bow. And I'm going to shoot some arrows. I'm going to shoot a few of them. Because I'm not only going to shoot one. I want the people in the field to know 
that, you know, maybe I'm just taking target practice. And as I shoot the arrow, I'm going to send someone off. And when you see that person grab the arrow, then you will know you can come to me. And that's exactly what happens. Jonathan, in verse 38, called the lad that would pick up the arrow. Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go bring them to the city. Okay, go. You can't be seen here, right? Jonathan and David need to talk. What do we read? When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. He honors his friend And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. And Jonathan said to David, go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. We see now David loses an ally. Like he'll have Jonathan working behind the scenes as an ally, but to be together David loses his friend. So where does David go? Well, he goes to the next place that he thinks, and it's to the priest. Or a priest, at least. David came to Nob, chapter 21, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? What's interesting is Ahimelech's brother was Saul's spiritual advisor. And so Ahimelech sees David coming, and he's probably thinking, oh, what trouble are you bringing? What trouble is this going to mean for me? And we're going to find that out in a couple weeks. But they have this conversation, and here the priest is ministering as, as priests do. And, and what do we know about what priests do in the administration of the, the sacrifices and all these things? They would have bread that was available that was given to the Lord, consecrated bread, set-apart bread. David is on the run. David is not just by himself. David has some of the men that are with him that he controlled or was commander of in Israel's army. They stayed pledged with him. And as we see David running off and running for his life, he and these men almost become like guerrilla warfare people in the rest of 1 Samuel as they are on the run from Saul. And, and so as they're at this place, they go to this priest. Why? They're hungry. And we read in chapter 21, they're looking for food. And the priest is like, I can't give you food. What if one of you is unholy? You've been touched by a woman. You have broken the vows that you were to prepare yourself. And David's like, no, we haven't done that. So the priest in verse 6 gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place. They ate the holy bread. And you might say, did they break the law? No. David was holy and set apart. He didn't lie about that. His, his men were holy and set apart. They didn't lie about that. In fact, Jesus borrowed this incident in Mark chapter 2 when there was the question of the Sabbath came up. And, and Jesus quotes this incident and he says, listen, David was able to eat the bread and it was not a problem. And, and there he says in Mark 2, 
that the man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for the man. But in that crowd of people, there was one of Saul's people, Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David says in chapter, or verse 8, David says to Ahimelech, now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? He doesn't have any weapons. And what is there? Goliath's sword. So at this point, just think with me. David is on the run. He has no weapons. He gets a weapon. What's the weapon? It's, it's Goliath's sword. Where does David go next? He goes to Goliath's home with Goliath's sword. Why? Because he needs protection. That's what we read in verses 10 through 15. David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. He goes to the capital city of the enemy nation. And he goes to the king. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. I don't think David ever figured out this is where he would be in his life as he was tending the flocks in in his dad's fields years before. Then Achish, verse 14, said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence. Shall this one come into my house? Basically, David goes to the king, feigns his sanity so that the king would take him in. The king looks at him and says, I already got enough crazy people. I don't need any more. So David can't even find safety in the, the presence of a foreign king. But in this text, after David loses his friend, you, you get the sense, right? David is losing his self-respect. He has to fake his own sanity to survive. And you see a whittling away. David had a position and he lost it. He had a wife and he lost her. He had a wise counselor and lost him. He had a friend and lost him. He had self-respect and lost it. And not unlike Job, it hit him with such back-to-back force. Now, there may be centuries between David and us, but this man and his experiences are more relevant to us today than ever. One of those is the very familiar experience of leaning on others, other people, other things, rather than leaning on the Lord. By the end of chapter 21, it's clear David had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But it will be this journey that David's faith is strengthened in the Lord. Next week, we're going to consider three psalms that David writes in this season. Because chapter 22, verse 1 says that David escapes in a cave. And we know of at least three psalms that are written as David is in the cave running for his life. God crushed David. Why? so that David would look up to him. Sometimes in life, God crushes us 
He removes all the obstacles that get in the way of us seeing Him. And it's for our good. People cannot replace the Lord. Listen, love the people that are, that are in your life and love them well. But they are no substitute of the Lord Himself. I've said this before and she knows this. I, I tell my wife all the time. Well, not all the time. She knows I love Jesus more than I love her. And I know that she loves Jesus more than she loves me. And it's in the beauty of that kind of relationship that we know that we have each other. It's that kind of thing, right? But if I put her on a pedestal above the Lord and I make an idol out of her and I find my sufficiency and I find my worth in her alone, that's setting myself up for failure. Because I'm putting my, my affections on a person rather than putting my affections on the God who has created everything. When life is stripped away, it hurts. I am not diminishing the pain that you've experienced when you've gone through great sorrow in your heart. In fact, it's crushing. And some of you this morning are feeling the weight of that statement that disappointments and the great winnowing that happens in our lives when God is stripping away the things that become very important, almost too important, that are let go. I understand the crushing feeling that, that, that you must feel. The promise of that thing that you had your eye on for so long ended up decaying. You know, some of you have reached retirement and you're, you're like, okay, now I get to rest. And now you think, oh my gosh, where did my investments go? And that's been taken away. Maybe it's been a friend that you've had forever that has let you down in a big way. And they've crushed you by their actions. And maybe, just like David, it was a position that you had or a position that you desperately wanted. And you find yourself in a place of struggle in the job that you have or maybe the job that you were passed over for. And then like all these things have been chipping away at you. And can I just say to you this morning, that it is quite possible that all of those things have been chipped away because God is trying to get to your heart. And He's trying to get you to the point where you can see either again or for the first time that He truly is good and He loves you. Listen, don't give in to the temptation thinking that people, possessions, or positions will give you only what God can give. It was all taken away from David, but the story doesn't end right there. Be careful that you do not make idols of people and things. Because I know this, God is a jealous God. He wants your heart. And He will do whatever it takes to bring you back to Him. It's when everything is stripped away that we truly begin to see Christ at work. When we deny ourselves, 
when we pick up his cross and follow him. God will not disappoint you. He won't let you down. He will be with you every step. He will never disappoint. Let's pray.